When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Corpus coming in, gold in a world record. The birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. Ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today, we're speaking to a man who occupied the rarest of footy seats, the universally admired one. Regardless of your footy allegiance, most of us found it impossible to not warm to Dale Morris, the definition of a heart and soul player who gave his all to the Western Bulldogs in a 253-game career spanning 15 seasons. The 2016 Premiership was the sweetest of rewards for a life in footy where nothing came easy, but also one where no hurdle would prove insurmountable. Dale, hello. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, and thanks for the kind words. Not at all, not at all. Well, where do we find you in these uh, most unprecedented of times? Yeah, these crazy times. I'm actually Mr. Morris at our Taylor's Lake homeschooling facility, um, <laughs> looking after my two boys. And so far, so good. They still love me after nine weeks of homeschooling. So, yeah, all going well. Are you a, are you a disciplinarian, uh, Mr. Morris, or a soft touch? <laughs> no, I'm a bit of a softie. I just, yeah, doing my best to get through this period. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's amazed how much work the kids are doing, and, and they're just doing a great job. So we're just trying to keep our heads above water. Oh, good on you. You know, different to anyone else, of course. And you might be the school teacher there, but when it comes to the written word in the footy space, it's always been not just Dale Morris, but Western Bulldogs' favourite son, Dale Morris. It's impossible um, describing you any other way. And the favourite son tag is reserved for the precious few. You don't get it easily, and you don't get it by accident. So let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Where did Dale Morris, the kid, grow up? Yeah, I grew up in uh, in West Meadows um, with my two brothers, mum and dad. Um, and yeah, it was you know I had a, I had a great childhood. Um, very competitive, as you can imagine, with uh, two other two other brothers, one older, one younger. So I was the middle child. I had uh, my older brother Dean was always taller than me, and my younger brother John was always faster than me. So um, I was up against it either way I turned. But um, you know. We had a lot of fun um, as kids growing up, um, kicking the footy all the time, playing cricket in summer. Um, you know, it was never a dull moment growing up. And mum and dad forever breaking up fights between the three of you, I imagine. <laughs> I mean, this is, as a middle child, this is fertile ground for your competitive instincts that would come later. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mum and dad were the uh, the referees and the umpires trying to split us apart. But, um, yeah, it was some heated moments, but that's every kid. Um, you get into it, you get stuck into it, you get a bit animated, and mum and dad are always there to, to fix things up. But um, sometimes they got caught in the firing line. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's all, all in good fun. So what was a young Dale Morrison do? Oh, I love my footy. Love my footy, love my cricket. Um, yeah, just a, a typical kid that, um, you know, with his brothers that would go out, go to the cricket net, um, pad up and, you know, the brothers would bowl bounces at me um, the whole time and I'd do the same to them and markers in the pack trying to take hangers on each other um, in the backyard. Um, just your, your typical kids growing up. 
So when did football become serious, Dale? If I was to ask you that, is there an age you can identify where you really thought, um, this is what I want to actively pursue, or did it sort of happen gradually over a period of time? Yeah, I think like any kid growing up, I had, you know, I had dreams of, of playing footy, playing AFL. Um, I was an Essendon supporter growing up. Um, loved watching James Hurd. He was my favourite player. Um, and, yeah, me and my brothers, we would sit and watch the footy every Essendon game and just, you know, mess around in the backyard being our, our footy heroes. Um, and I guess it wasn't until, you know, much later, um, you know, when I was about, you know, 17, 18, that I started thinking maybe, maybe this is a possibility. But growing up, um, I was always told and led to believe that you had to play for the call to cannons when you wanted to have an AFL career. So as a junior coming through the ranks, playing for, you know, due to Stars Footy Club um, in the Essendon District Footy League as a junior coming through, um, I tried out for the cannons when, when I was ready to go. And, and both years just, didn't make it, um, would end up getting cut from the, the squads and, and never ended up making the, the, the cannons. And I made a couple of representative squads in the EDFL, which was all good fun. But I really wanted to play for the cannons because I thought that's what you had to do. And, and then to not make it, um, I, I did think that, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not cut out to play AFL, maybe it's not going to happen. But um, at the time at, at Duda's, there was a, a full forward there named uh, Simon Mitten Connell. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I was a young kid playing seniors at Duda's at the time. Um, and I was playing full back. So I got to do a lot of work with him, full back, the full forward in training and stuff. And, and played the season um, in the seniors as an underage in, uh, at, for Duda's. And then at the end of the year, he said, listen, I've got some contact and I think, I think you, you could make it. Um, and so I went down and back then it was a, a rookie tryout day. It was a couple of days that you'd go and train at a footy club for the, the rookie spot. So he, Simon, um, teed up me going down there and met me there and, and trained there for a couple of days. Um, but the, the Bulldogs turned around and said, listen, we don't know anything about you, um, you know, but do you want to go and play for, for Werribee? They're our affiliate team in the VFL. Uh, go there, we can keep an eye on you, see how you progress, and I guess you never know. And I jumped at the opportunity to go and play for, for Werribee and affiliate uh, team for the Bulldogs. And, and again, went there with the attitude, you never know. You never know what can happen. Um, and I guess from that day forward, I was like, maybe this can happen. Um, so it was, yeah, if it wasn't for Simon hooking up those, um, you know, that training session with the, with the dogs, maybe this, never would have happened. Yeah. So you go and you spend four years at Werribee. And I think at the end of each of those four years, and mind you, at this point in time, you're plying your trade against AFL-listed players on a near-weekly basis. So I imagine that was valuable. But at the end of every year, wouldn't you go back and try it for that rookie spot at the, at the Witten Oval? It was the annual audition, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much at the end. And I was really lucky to, to just have those opportunities to go and train with, a, with an AFL, with an elite team. Um, and the way I saw it, that if I didn't make the list, I'm going to come back to the VFL and be super fit. And it's going to really set me up for the season. And I guess it will um, increase your chances of getting uh, drafted or rookied at the end of the following year. Um, but yeah, after every year, I'd go and, and, uh, and try out and train and do um, you know the, the whole preseason leading up to Christmas until the, the draft and the rookie draft was. And you're right, during the VFL seasons, I spent my first year in the development league. Um, the second year, the first half of that year, I was in the development league and then started playing seniors for, for Werribee um, and playing against AFL-listed players and, and doing well and beating them really um, built my belief and confidence that if I could get an opportunity, if I could get drafted, if I could just get that chance that I know I could do it because I was beating AFL-listed players in the VFL... So the confidence really grew. I just needed that chance. Um, and then, yep. I was just going to say, that chance was, was so elusive, though, wasn't it? I, I was pretty keen yeah. to ask you, after several attempts and, and being overlooked, whether there was any bitterness in you. I, I think you were walking working at, at Claudio's IGA in West Meadows. I mean, did, <laughs> did you think you'd have to ask for more hours there or what? Yeah, yeah. As each year went on and, and not quite making it, um, I was also studying in, in Bandura at RMIT. So I was... Jeez living in West Meadows, um, go out and study at Bundura, drive all the way out to Werribee, um, go clean the butchers at night time at wow. Claudio's IGA. Um, so it was, yeah, there was a, a lot going on.
but um, it's it's what I wanted to do, um, and I knew I wanted to do it, and I wanted to give it uh, a really good crack while I could. And you know, you, you shoot for the stars, and if you don't quite make it, um, you'll be amazed at where it can take you. And that's what I just thought. If if I just give this a crack, who knows what can happen? Um, but yeah, it was pretty full on all all the driving, and and that that last year, the 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 fourth time that I tried out for that rookie spot. Um, I knew then that if I didn't make it that year, that it's you know getting really slim to make the AFL, and it probably won't happen. Um, so I was talking to IGA about increasing the hours to get more money, um, and I was also talking to local footy clubs in the EDFL about coming back and playing EDFL um, to earn a bit more coin there as well. So um, you know I was putting things in place just in case uh, the the dream to play AFL didn't happen, but uh, thankfully it did. So finally at 22, they give you a chance in the rookie draft, the Dogs. Do you remember the moment after this massive build-up when it finally came to pass that you the olive branch would be extended? Do you remember how it took place? Oh, yeah. Um, I remember that year. It was the most amount of players that we had trying out for rookie spots, and the, the club was only going to take two spots, two rookies. So there was a, a bunch of us trying out, and um, the first uh, rookie selection the Dogs had they actually selected someone that wasn't even training in that group. Um, it was Rowan Maynard. He was uh, training at North Melbourne, I think, at the time. And um, and then that second selection um, was going to be used in the group and the pool that we had there. Of, you know, I think there was maybe eight or eight or ten guys training. And um, I thought, oh, geez, this is I'm up against it here. And and one by one, we're getting called into Rocket's office um, and getting told yes or no. Um, and that all the guys had gone before me and they came out disappointed and, and stuff like that. And, and then I went in there and it's pretty intimidating walking into Rocket's office at the best of times um, with him sitting behind the desk and he said, sit down, take a seat. And so I did and he goes, listen, unfortunately, and as soon as he said that, I just dropped my shoulders and I thought that, oh, well, that's it. Um, better talk to IGA and, and increase my hours. And unfortunately, we're going to take you in the rookie list. And said, oh, thank you. Very-. And it's like, oh, hang on, what? And he goes, yes, we're going to rookie you. And and it was just incredible. Um, you know, I'm a, a fairly uh, positive guy. But after that, that, the smile on my face lasted the whole session. It was one of the hardest training sessions we had. But I had a smile on my face the whole time, just loving life. Has a sense of theatre on Rocket, if you don't mind. And yeah. <laughs> you, you play 17 games in 05 in year one, and then you're upgraded to the senior list. I mean, gee, that must have been satisfying. And I was keen to ask you whether you subscribe to the theory that starting late, as it were, at 22, whether you thought that might have helped you at the back end of your career, because you obviously played until you were 36. Yeah, I've got no doubt it helped me in a lot of ways. Um, and I wasn't put through the rigours of, playing AFL as a, as a young guy coming through. Yeah, I did the pre-season, but didn't get the, you know, beaten up and, and pushed around all that much um, early in my career, which I think helped um, injury-wise later in the career and, and I reckon extended my, my career. Um, and also, I was able to develop a lot in the VFL. And, you know, if I would have got picked up as an 18-year-old, maybe I wouldn't have had the career that I had. Um, and I think that, you know, it was meant to be that I was meant to be at Werribee for four years to, to really hone in my craft. Um, I started off there as playing full forward in the development league and kicked, I think it was four goals in the first half in my first game. And then they threw me down to full back. And ever since then, I've played full back. Before that, all my juniors, I was centre forward um, midfielder. Um, and then all of a sudden, find myself in the back line. Um, you know, and if it wasn't for that time and playing senior year at, at, at Duda Stars against men, um, and then the four years at, at Werribee, I, I wouldn't have been the player that I was um, at the other end. So um, it all happened for a reason. Indeed. And you're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Next, Dale Morris might have cracked the big time, but the hard yards were just starting. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And today we're with Western Bulldogs stalwart Dale Morris. 
Now, Dale, obviously every player plays with and deals with injury, but I reckon you were footy's version of a crash test dummy. There were knee reconstructions, <laughs> broken backs, torn pecs, broken legs, broken forearms, fractured jaws, and God knows what else. I mean, you didn't <laughs> muck around with the standard hammy or calf, did you? you? When you broke, you broke properly. Yeah, I didn't mess around, but the, the thing with all that is, the first half of my career, I hardly had an injury. Mm. Um, so the, for the first seven years, I flew to 150 games and was thinking, geez, this is all right. I'd get the odd maybe soft tissue, but that was usually in the preseason um, when you're loading back up. But playing the games, I flew and then had the horrific you know, broken leg. And since then, it's just set off a chain reaction. And you're right, I didn't just bend, I broke. You haven't even been safe in retirement, didn't you? Yourself uh, taking your kids to the park more recently? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was the end of uh, last year or early this year. I am um, coming back from the ACL operation, um, and I, I guess I was falling into a false sense of security. I thought everything was going okay. I'd gone for a few runs and felt fit and healthy, and d- decided to play tiggy with the kids at the park. And I didn't want to get tagged. That's the problem. Um, and the kids were coming down the slide behind me and I went to jump off and twisted and landed and, and aggravated the knee. So I was in a knee brace for another um, six weeks after that. So, but since then, it's, it's all been smooth sailing. By 2011, Moz, you'd experienced a lot in the game, good and bad. I mean, you're an All-Australian by that point. You'd had the pain of three consecutive preliminary final defeats. But honestly, did anything compare to the excruciating pain of that broken leg you just mentioned? It took place against Essendon. It is round 21, 2011. Yeah, no, no, nothing compares to that. Like the the ACLs, three ACLs in two years was pretty bad. Um, And the the prelim losses were were bad. But I think the the broken leg takes the cake for, you know, a a variety, multiple of reasons. Um, Not only the the pain of the injury itself and the being in a wheelchair and a knee brace and and, um, crutches and, and then reloading, trying to get back to play, rule over play. I'm not sure if I can do this again. Um, and being at that age, you know, uncertainty, will be, is this the end of my career? But it's also the amount of stress that I, that, that injury and that I put on my family, and in particular my wife, was just um, horrific. Um, at the time, she was, we had our, our eldest, Riley was two, and she was pregnant with our second child, Charlie. Um, mm. She was about 20 weeks pregnant at the time. And the, you know, the amount of pressure and, and stress that I inadvertently put her under, um, because I was just a big baby at home, so I needed looking after myself. Um, I couldn't do anything. Uh, so she took on the brunt of that. And family and, and the footy club and everyone were there and helped and supported. But behind closed doors, she was feeling it probably more than me. And it that on its own just almost caused complications with, with the, the birth of our second child. It, you know, she went into early labour way too early and had to go into hospital and, and have some um, drugs to stop contractions and stuff because it just it wasn't time to have, um, have Charlie. And, uh, and thankfully, the, the doctors got it under control and were able to um, wait and, and, uh, and have um, our second child a little bit later when he was meant to come and, and everything's all good now. But um, if anything had have happened, I would never, never ever have um, forgiven myself. Ah, it's real stress, isn't it, that sort of stuff? And I, th- I think Gemma said she went into yep. labour at, at 32 weeks, I think she thought it was, and then she was bedridden for, for two months and then it was your turn to look after her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What goes around comes around. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and, and speaking of that, you know, before every game that I ever played, I'd sleep in a separate room, separate bed, um, or in a granny flat. So I'd get a good night's sleep. Um, so there's over 500 nights sleep still owing to Jem at the moment. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure she's going to cash them in sometime soon. Just the break itself. It was a clean break, wasn't it? And I think you said at the time yep. that it was, it was reset without surgery. So um, the surgeons were literally able to, to what, like twist it back into position with the risk of being too graphic. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was unbelievable. Um, you know, the whole series of events and getting to the hospital. And luckily for me, yeah, it was a clean break. You see Nathan Brown when he broke his leg, how it was coming through the skin and, and stuff. So they couldn't set his leg the way that they set mine. Um, so I'm lying down under x-ray. They check it um, and see that it's a clean break. And, you know, one foot's pointing straight to the ceiling. The other foot's lying flat on the bench. It was quite 
quite strange. And they were able to, um, you know, numb the area. And, and then, you know, like you said, without getting too graphic, was grab my ankle, pull it down, and then twist the bone into shape and then let it go into place, re-X-ray it, um, adjust it a little bit to when they were happy. And then as soon as they were happy, they, they just plastered it up. So there were no rods, no pins, nothing. Um, it was put back into place and, and my body was left to do its thing and, and heal and and uh, mend the bone back together. And the pain was so severe, understandably, of course, that I think you stay in your footy shorts and your jumper for two days, don't you? <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. I, I couldn't move, couldn't move, couldn't cough, couldn't sneeze. The, the pain was unreal. Nothing I've ever had before and... and if you think about it, like the, the bones would sit there and, and just, if you move, they would hit. And, and the, the shooting pain that you'd experienced from that was, was quite um, unreal. And a couple of days um, after uh, everything was set and I was in hospital, um, uh, Jordan Ruffhead and Eastern Wood came in to visit me, which was nice of them. And, and at the same time, um, David Young came in, the surgeon, and he was looking after him. He's been unreal for my football career put me back together many many times and he's done a fantastic job with it and and this time he knew to stimulate bone growth bones need to hit and they need that just stimulates more bone growth so he said right up up you get out of bed and i looked at him and i said i said youngie there is no chance i'm getting out of bed here and he goes no you have to this is part of your recovery um trust me it's it's what your body needs it's what your leg needs so i trust him and swung the legs for the first time in like three or four days over the bed and put them down. And just the blood rush and the throbbing was, was unreal. And, and I could feel I was, going, I was getting faint. And uh, Youngie said, all right, up you get, stand up. I said, Youngie, I can't do this. And he goes, you can and you have to, let's do it. So we did, I stood up and my heel just like feather touched the ground and I could feel um, I'm fainting, I'm gone, I'm down. And Ruffy and Woody were there, and they grabbed me and they put me back to into the bed, and I'm I'm spaced out. I didn't know what was going on. And Youngie goes, "That's right, we'll try again tomorrow." And as he walks, so if Ruffy and Woody weren't there, I'd probably collapse on the floor somewhere in the hospital. But um, you know, all's well that ends well. Youngie knew what he was doing because it all worked. Unbelievable, unbelievable stuff. Um, late 2016, your Bulldogs have won seven of nine games and there's some real momentum building by the time you play Fremantle at Subiaco. It's the final round of the season, but it turns out to be a bad loss and it's made worse after you cop a knock to the back. What what happened next, Moz? Yeah, that was, wasn't a good game, that one, against Freo. Pab's last game and Freo were up and about and they played some really, really good footy. Um, and credit to them, though, they... they sent him off in style. But um, during the game, um, you know, I gave a handball to a teammate and just went to block for him and copped a, a bump to the to the back. And it hurt a bit more than normal. Um, and I didn't think much of it. I just thought, oh, he got me in the sweet spot. Good corky, that one. So I played the game out. And as I'm playing, my back would spasm. And at times I'd almost, you know, go to my knees during the game. And I was like, what's going on? He must have hit a nerve or something. And uh, told the docs and everything after the game, and uh, and it got the plane ride home, and the pain was getting worse and worse, and I couldn't move. So we went and got the X-ray, and um, yeah, it turned out that I fractured my back. The transverse process, um, two of two of those, like the wings of your spine snapped two of them off, and I just couldn't believe it. I, I didn't think that could even happen. Um, and so a lot was going through my mind. We had finals coming up. I instantly thought, well, that's it. I'm not playing finals. I'm done. Um, but um, that's the thing. With all my injuries and every single injury, I was surrounded by the best, the best doctors, the best surgeon, the medical team, physical team. Um, they did an incredible job. And I have a lot of questions when it comes to injuries and management coming back. And, and they just... They're honest. They they tell you how it is, um, and they make decisions. Um, and, and the first and foremost, they'll make decisions what's best for the person, not the player. Um, and yeah, so that injury wasn't a wasn't a great one, that's for sure. Geez, because at the time, Tob Liberatore and Jack McRae, they were the high profile injury cases, and they were battling to get back for the finals. But behind the scenes, you're getting ready for and then playing in an elimination final against West Coast with well, effectively a broken back, and then you. Pardon the pun, you're back up against Hawthorne the next week, but I think mm. you were really, really close. It might have even been on the drive in. You thought, oh, I'm no chance yep. of playing this game. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, without that buy before the finals, um, myself um, and Libba and Jacko and probably Eastern Wood with his ankle as well, mm. um, probably don't get up and probably don't play. So that, that buy was a blessing for us. Um, and yeah, coming into that, that first final. Um, and the questions I had for the docs and the physios about my back was all based around can I be a dad? Can I play with my kids? Can I lift them up and, and give them piggybacks and stuff like that? And and they reassured me that your back's going to be fine, your back's going to heal, um, and you will be able to do that no matter what we do now. And I said, okay, can I play footy? And they said, yes, you can play footy. Um, if I said, is it going to get any worse? You know, am I going to do you know permanent damage to my back? And and they said. It's not going to get worse. You're not going to do more damage. The only thing we're going to need to deal with is the pain. Um, it's going to be quite painful. But if you can handle the pain, then you can play. Um, and it, we promise you it's not going to get worse. So, And that's what we did. And, and you know, the first final, we had to fly back to Perth to play West Coast. And so I went up early with a bunch of guys and um, just so the back could settle down before the game and, and was able to get through the game and... and play okay and I was thinking okay the back's feeling really good the next week we come up against Hawthorne and I wake up the day of the game and try and get out of bed and I can't move my, my back is just fully seized if I go to I could hardly get my pants on and to go down to pick up my shoes or put my socks on just be shooting pain um, down my legs up my back it was it was horrible so I left early to get into the game and I'm talking to the doctors and the physios and giving them a heads up that I'm going to, I'm early to the game, but I was extra early because I needed a lot of work, a lot of treatment and um, got in there and, and they worked their magic and I was able to get up um, and be able to play that game. But I was very, very close um, not to play. And then the following week against, uh, against GWS in the prelim, in the warm up, my back was fine but I thought I tore my Achilles. <laughs> How you got through this final series, we'll never know. Oh, it was unreal. <laughs> I just got a handball received from Boydie in the warm-up and landed awkwardly. And my, my Achilles, I had pain in there like I'd never had before and I couldn't move, couldn't walk. Um, I couldn't do anything. And this was in the warm-up. So there's literally five minutes to go before the game starts. And uh, Zimmer and Jakey run up to me. I've got um, everyone there and told them what happened so they've given me painkillers and and the uh we had the wedges to put in your shoe so i had about five of them in my boot to take the load off the achilles and they said just play and let's see what happens we'll get through this and i was able to get through and then come the grand final i felt great like the back was good the achilles was good i was finally ready to go and and what a day it was what a day it was indeed. We'll get to that right now. You with This is your Sporting Life brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, as we mentioned after the break, it's not all setbacks for Dale Morris. We're about to revisit the Dogs' drought-breaking 2016 Premiership. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with a much-loved former Western Bulldogs stopper, Dale Morris. Well, Dale, as is so often the case, it's the seasons, or in the Bulldogs' case, really decades of disappointment that go into making premierships so special. Now, you'd need no reminding, but in the three years before Luke Beveridge got to the kennel, your dogs finished 15th, 15th and 14th. And that 14th in 2014 was followed by the departures of the captain, Ryan Griffin. Adam Cooney left. Brendan McCartney, the coach, was obviously gone. And the CEO, Simon Garlick, departed as well. I mean, what on earth was the mood like at that stage at the club? Oh, that was that was insane at the time. Um, it, it felt like everything was spiralling out of control. It, the feeling was something I'd never ever had before to have so much happen in such a short period of time. And and basically the key pillars of your club and the organisation gone. Um, you just you were left wondering what what's going to happen. Where are we at? What's what's going on? Um, but credit to the footy club uh, in such an incredibly crazy time, an incredibly challenging time, they were able to think clearly and make really good decisions, strong decisions 
to help set the club up for the future in, in such a, a crazy time. You know, the appointment of Bevo um, as coach um, and then Murph as captain, um, you know, two really important key pillars of, of any club, um, really help set us up for, for the future. And um, that really set everyone's minds at ease. Um, and the, the first meetings we had with Bevo, how he was on board and he's with us and it really, um, you know, calmed the group down and, and got us on track from the get-go. And from a time that you said was just so chaotic, um, it was great to, to have such st- stability and such great people in those positions. In his first year, you make an elimination final, but you bow out at the hands of Adelaide. And then in 2016, you finish seventh. And after the first ever pre-finals by, you've got to go back to Perth, we know, to play West Coast. But after losing to the 16th place Dockers in round 23, the club the club had never won an interstate final before. You hadn't saluted at Subiaco for six years. The Eagles had won nine of their previous 10. Honestly, what level of optimism did the playing group have going into that final? Yeah, that was an interesting time. And obviously the last game against Frio was not a good one. So... We uh, reviewed that and made some changes about where we stayed and our, our build-up to that game. Um, the guys that, that were injured that needed to travel earlier went earlier, um, and the guys that weren't, they came in later. So they had the, just the day before would get there, have a little run around, sleep, and then play, whereas uh, against Frio, I think we're up there for a couple of days before. So we reviewed what didn't work, um, and change some things to come into that game with, um, you know, with a different outlook. Um, but the belief in the group was always there. We knew that we were good enough um, and our best footy w- was good enough. And after that game against, you know, you come up against uh, West Coast on their home deck and they're a hard, very, very hard team to beat on their home deck. And to walk away with the win, we'd look around and go, far out, that was, that was good. That, this feels really good. And then the next week, you come up against Hawthorne. I mean, the juggernaut Hawthorne, they're, mm. you know, they've had such a successful era that you come and, and you get that win. And we're looking around going, wow, this is happening. Um, and you could really feel the, the momentum building. And it wasn't just us. It was outside of us. Um, the supporters, the fans, um, it just the, the general public could sense something was going on. And that prelim, that prelim against GWS was, was absolutely unreal. When we ran out on their home deck to cheers um, and claps, and then they would run out to booze, and you couldn't hear them, their cheers, and it, it's meant to be their, their home ground. Like our supporters, they were there in force, and that, that helped us when we first got out onto the ground and really helped us through that game. And to be, to, to be in so many prelims over such a long period of time and not get that, that win, to not get over that last hurdle to get to a grand final... Was, was the pain that a lot of um, supporters knew about. And once we got that, that win, it, it was just absolutely unreal. The, the emotion attached to that game was more than the grand final. Um, that game, the, yeah, like I said, emotionally was, was way more significant than the grand final. We, we didn't know what to expect getting to a grand final, but we'd been to the prelim so many times and lost. To get that win was just unreal. Yeah, there weren't many dry, dry eyes around after that one up in Sydney. And Luke Beveridge loves a theme. He loves a story. And on grand final day, he, he went with a music theme, didn't he? I think he said if you brought all your instruments and combined all your talents, you could beat the highly fancied swans. Is that the basically the semblance yeah. of what he said before the game? Yep, yep. He, he does love his themes. Um, and that was the theme was to, to bring, your, bring your instruments, bring your strengths, um, and and put it all together and 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 we did. Um, yeah, it was it, it, it was an unreal day, uh, unreal build up. You're talking, you know, the grand final parades and thousands of people coming to training and and the build up to that one day was something that I'll never ever forget. So many big moments, and it was a decider that really shocked with its brutality, but it thrilled with its energy at the same time. But the iconic moment was undoubtedly your tackle on Buddy Franklin and Tom Boyd's bomb from inside the centre square. I'm sure you've been asked about this hundreds upon hundreds of times, but how does it <laughs> how does it live on with you that specific moment, Dale? Oh, it, it's pretty surreal. But you look at that that game and the amount of moments that all of our players took during that game. You know, I could go through them now with you and I probably will. You look at 
Zane caught his tackle um, on Hanabry where he just crunched him into the ground and took the wind out of him. You've got Shane Biggs' efforts in the half-forward um, line to keep that ball alive, to keep it in our half. Um, Ruffy's clutch mark at the end of the game. You've got Boydie uh, with massive wings, um, uh, Matty Boyd with massive wings on the wing. Um, you know, it just keeps going on and on. And Woody's hit early in the game um, on uh, Kieran Jack, I think it was. You know, there were key moments throughout the game. But, yeah, I'll never forget the, the tackle, obviously. And, and the kick by Boydie was, wasn't bad either. But um, coming into the game and knowing that I'd have times when I'd be playing on, on Buddy, um, I'm someone who did uh, a lot of homework on my players and looked for little things that I could use to my favour that they would do. And, and one thing with Buddy that I noticed, that when the ball's over his head and he's got to take an overhead mark, a lot of the time he'd double grab. He would ball down to then take a chest mark. And late in that game, when the kick was uh, was coming to Buddy, it was going over his head. So I knew I needed to be close enough to to just make him spoil that first mark and he would probably go for a double grab. So I was there and he went for the double grab and I was able to just get a fingertip as the ball was coming down um, for him to take that, that chest mark. And and then the ball's alive um, and whatever can happen will happen. And I went to help the next contest and, and Buddy took off to the middle of the ground and, and I didn't see him slip past me. Um, and then the handball went to him and I thought, I thought I'd stuffed up. I thought, oh, no, I've cost us the game here. Um, Buddy's going to reel around perfectly on his left foot and drive that ball deep inside their forward line um, for them to potentially score. So when the ball had tapped out to him, um, I just took off because, yeah, like I said, I thought I messed up. And luckily, the way he got the ball, he was kind of blindsided and didn't see me coming at all. So he took that extra step um, before he was going to launch, I reckon, and that gave me the opportunity to just tackle him. Um, I knew I had to pin him, and I had to, he's a big guy, so I had to give it everything to get him down to the ground. And, and I did that, and I was, I was cooked at the time. I was spent, and the ball spilled out. And I thought, how am I going to kick this inside the forward line? But didn't have to worry because Boydie's picked up the ball, and he has just launched into this massive kick from the centre square. And the sound that made, I'd, I had the best seats in the house. I was mm-hmm. lying down cooked and watching Boydie pick it up and he's just roosted this this kick from inside the square and the way it arced into the goals it was almost like someone was just pulling the ball into the goal square um it was it was unreal and then when the ball bounced I thought the ball bounced backwards and didn't go through so I'm go to get up but the crowd you know behind the goals just lifted and got on their feet and started cheering so I knew then that the ball had gone through and you know, I was just so happy for him to be able to take that moment. And, and he, had a, he had a massive final series, by the way, with Ruffy, um, you know, injuring his eye, which, which was a very serious injury mm. and almost didn't get up to play for the, the grand final. But luckily he did. Um, but for Boyder to step up in the, in the prelim to take the ruck and have a, such a good final series along with so many other players and then to take that moment and to to kick that goal was, was just something pretty special. Oh, it invoked such powerful emotion, didn't it? And the noise was just, you're right, it was spine-tingling. It was incredible. And when did you think you had it won on the day, though, Dale? Because am I right in saying that Jordan <laughs> Ruffhead was probably convinced a little bit uh, earlier than you? Yeah. <laughs> well, there was only seconds to go in the game, but I didn't know that. Um, so Toby got his free kick um, in the pocket. And so I'm running up, telling everyone to set up set up for a kick in, uh, for a kick out, set up, set up. And Ruffy runs past me and he goes, stuff this set up, we've won the grand final. And I've sworn at him to tell him to shut up and go and set up <laughs> because I wasn't going to let this slip. I was going until that final siren went. I just wanted it so bad. And then a few seconds later, the, the siren went. But I wasn't going to um, you know, be happy and content with how we're going until everything was done and dusted. Oh, well, we're talking to Dale Morris. Incredible story on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back shortly with Dale, whose versatility saw him play on just about every dangerous forward there was. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Former Western Bulldogs defender Dale Morris is our guest today. Well, Dale, Lance Franklin, the Rewalts, Brendan Favola, Steve Johnson, Alan Didak, <laughs> Lindsay Thomas. You went from Daniel Bradshaw to Daniel Motlop. I mean, they say variety is the spice of life, but as a defender, this is just about enough to drive you around the bend. Yeah, no, I was... It was a great experience and I'd, I'd love, and the way that I approach the games is if you want to be the best, you've got to beat the best. Um, and luckily for me, I had a bit of pace, so I was able to stay with those, those little uh, nippy forwards and also had, you know, a bit of height so I could compete with the, with the tall guys. But, um, you know, over my career, I've had a lot of support and a lot of help from all the players I've played with. So I haven't done it alone, but um, I've, I've loved the opportunity to play on some of the, the game's greats and to really test your skills against them. You haven't done it alone, but with guys like Rewalt and Franklin and others, I mean, you, you primarily played on these guys in an era when it was one-on-one. I mean, what was it like knowing your matchup in those days so heavily shaped the result? I, I loved that pressure. Um, it was very, very one-on-one um, before zones and, and um, all that third man up stuff really kicked in and really took off. Um, it was It was still there. But, um, yeah, it was very much a one-on-one game. And, and to know that your matchup and your opponent um, and whether you win or lose um, that, uh, that contest will have a massive say in determining the result of the game was something, you know, a lot of pressure, but I, I loved it. Um, you know, I, I really, really did enjoy coming up against someone like, um, you know, Nick Rewald, who just works so hard up and down the ground. And, you know, if I can beat him, the team's probably going to win. Um, you know, it, it was pretty cool. So, Buddy Franklin could catch fire at any moment, and Nick Rewalt was just relentless with his running. It, would it be between the two of them in terms of the most difficult assignment you had over your career? Uh, of the tools, yeah, definitely. Add to that, you know, uh, you know, Pavlich um, yep. and, and Lloyd and these guys, they were really, really hard. But um, uh, Rewalt was, was the one that, I always seem I always play on him, and and I got to play on him at his peak as well when he was just uh, a, and was a such such a good player for such a long period of time. Um, playing on Buddy in his early days, I think he kicked one goal twelve on me, so it was nice that he didn't kick straight that game. But, um, <laughs> what about another yeah, thirteen to Channel Hunter? Yeah, he could have. Maybe it was one goal eleven because the end of the day I said, "I oh, only kicked uh, a few goals on me," so it was okay. But um, you know, coming up against these guys um, was pretty cool. But of the tools, yeah, Rewalt definitely number one. Buddy's just behind him with the players like Pav and, and these guys. Mm. Um, the smalls, you know, and even though I played on Rewalt, I got to spend a bit of time on, on Milne as well. And he was one of the best small forwards that I'd, that I'd come up against. Mm. Um, his his craft and forward knowledge was just unbelievable. Drop a ball stuff was, was so good. And and add to him, um, probably Eddie Betts. Um, he's, he's not your typical small forward, Eddie Betts. Uh, it, it, his days at Carlton, he was a small forward that liked to play as almost like a tall forward with their lead-out mark and, and goals. But he was so dangerous um, once that ball hit the deck that um, you needed someone who could compete in the air but have that speed on the ground. And I think that's just why we had such a good battle and good contest over many, many years. Um, and the, oh, the mid-sized players, like Stevie Johnson was just one of the hardest mid-sized, mid-sized players to play against mm. because I, I would do my homework on my players and if they were a right-side dominant player, I'd stand on their right leg um, so they couldn't use it. And there's just little tips and tricks that you could do, like drop a ball. If you're on their right side, they want to arc around that way to do a right foot snap. Um, and if you're standing there, it forces them to go the other way and either do a check side or kick with their opposite that they're not comfortable with. But Stevie J was just so good on both sides that he made it hard for me um, to know where to run and what to do. Um, and, you know, playing in such a good team also helped, but uh, he, he was um, a very challenging opponent. And weren't you asked to tag Robert Harvey once? Speaking of another saint. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that was uh, Brent Harvey from North. Oh, Brent Harvey. Chucked in the middle. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So tagged him. Uh, I think he's still got his 30. Love the one-two. Just gave me the ears. You'd have him and he'd give a one-two and double up. Um, but that was the game. 
uh, GPS units were still quite new at the time, um, and I wore a GPS unit, and I reckon there was something wrong with it, and it glitched, but it said that um, I covered about 18 Ks that game, um, and I think I touched it maybe six times. So there's a lot of effort for not much reward in all the running that I was doing, but um, you know, early days playing on, on Didac, um, and that was a tag, so you go everywhere with him. So I'd find myself in the centre square bounce and have a couple of clearances and thought this was great as a midfielder. <laughs> and given you spend so much time on the same opponent back through the years, particularly the key forwards, I mean, the verbal, did you play that card from time to time? No, and again, that was a bit of research that I do on the plate. Um, uh, Rewalt, nothing would phase him, so there was no point getting stuck into him. Um, you just, you play the game, and I was someone who would always play it fair, and, and but as hard as I could. And But there were other players that, you could see that you could maybe get into their, their mindset a little bit and maybe put them off their game a bit. And some guys, it's, it's by being very vocal um, and, and talking to them a lot. Uh, and other guys, it could be saying nothing um, because you could see that when they played against someone, they'd chat a lot to their opposition, almost trying to calm themselves down and feel comfortable out there. But if you ignore them, then they wonder why you're not talking to them and they can't calm themselves down um, and it just puts them off their game. But, um, you know, a player like Fev, like Fev was a, a very, very hard opponent to play against. And he'd be up there as well as one of the, the hard opponents that I've had. Um, and I noticed with Fev that if you got him chatting, um, then he can uh, get his mind off the game. So during the game, I talked to him about everything, about the umpires, about what's going on outside of footy and, and stuff like that. And at times... It, it's only, you're only talking a couple of percent, one or two percent to put them off their game. And uh, I felt that that would help me um, beat him. And he loved to chat as well. And he always smelled amazing when you played on him too. He had all the aftershave on and everything. <laughs> so um, to chat with him and, and to put him off his game was, was something that I did and, and was able to work to my favour. So you were, or you appeared anyway, largely unflappable. There, there must have been someone who was pretty good at getting under your skin. <laughs> yeah. It, it usually was the small forwards, and I think it still happens today. They, they get under the skin of a lot of defenders. Um, I remember coming up against uh, Hayden Ballantyne, and uh, we are playing over there and in the game, and he, I always, always went to shake the hands of my opposition to wish them well and wish them the best. It was just, you know, um, that's the type of person that I was, and then it's game on after that. Um, and again, um, Hayden came down, and I shook his hand and said, good luck. And he said, you too? And he turned to me and goes, I hope you brought your running shoes. And I just, I scoffed at him. I said, what are you talking about? And then ended up smashing him for the game. And <laughs> end of the game, he goes, yep, you brought your shoes, didn't you? So it was, you know, stuff like that I loved in the game. That was good fun. What does the future hold for you, Moz? I mean, the difficulty of COVID, unfortunately, uh, hit home for you when you were uh, stood down as the development coach at the Dogs. But I, I hear you've found yourself a, a new role at the club. Yes, yeah. So after playing, um, you know, I stepped into development, into the de- development coach space. Um, yeah, but unfortunately, like so many people out there with, mm. with COVID hitting so many businesses and industries, I was put on stand down when it, when it first, when that first wave came through. Um, and since then have been on stand down. Um, and it's been, it's been a massive roller coaster. There's been you know, ups and downs along the way and a lot of challenges that, that come through like everyone's going through. And and then unfortunately, it was uh, made that my position would become redundant. Um, and, you know, again, like so many people going through that, it, it's, it's pretty hard to hear. Um, and it felt like I was just getting my teeth into coaching and was just getting a feel for things. And, and unfortunately, this came through and, you know, it is what it is. It's the club have had to make a lot of tough decisions like many, many businesses have. And, and I didn't hold any, um, you know, any anger or, or any angst to them for that. It was just, it is what it is. And, and the conversations kept going with the club in upstairs and the, in the footy admin um, with Nick and the team up there. And there was a potential for a possible, a role that, uh, that I could maybe fill. And, and we kept the communication lines open and the club's been a, huge for me over you know 16 years um and to this role to come come through and and for me to remain at the club albeit in a different department but to still be a part of the club is is something pretty cool and pretty special and 
I can't thank them enough um, with everything that, that they've done for me and, and it continues on. So it's in the commercial department. Have I got that right, Moz? So working with the uh, yeah. Coterie Groups? Yep. Yeah, working with the Coterie Groups, a bit of uh, business development executive, nice fancy title um, in the corporate sales and, and <laughs> stuff. So there's a lot that I can obviously bring to the role and there's going to be a lot that I'll need to learn along the space and, Suit and tie. Uh, along the way. So <laughs> Yeah, I might have to. Um, it's going to be a bit, bit weird. But in saying that, for the last, uh, five five years of my football career, I, I really, you have to start thinking about the end, unfortunately. You can't play footy forever. So I was spending my day off uh, for the last five years doing work experience. And for, for three of those years, I was at WorkSafe in the city um, with the health, safety and wellbeing team in there. And, and that's, that involves getting, you know, the slacks and shirt and tie sometimes on and, and going into the office and, you know, sitting in meetings and, and being a part of uh, a team in the office. Um, and then they moved to Geelong and I was able to um, move in with EML, the coach's sponsor, and same thing um, with the business development team in, in EML. And, and uh, again, getting dressed up, getting the shirt on, getting the slacks on and just seeing what was out there and what it was like in the real world outside of footy. And, and I think that's helped me um, build a network, which I've learnt and, and worked out that networking is massive. Um, and it's really helped with my transition, well, my transition now into a new role where there's, it's not going to be as big a shock to the system. Dale Morris, it's been great to chat today. You're a, a, just a great example of refusing to take no for an answer and overcoming adversity. You played the game, as we remember, with a, a heart and soul and a fierce desire to leave nothing on the field, all of which are traits that are so well admired in our game. Well done on all you achieved, and thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you very much. It's been fun. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you next week to celebrate the life of another sporting icon. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.